From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today, we have a threefer. Chris Tsunami from the Columbus Invitational Artists Competition will tell us about the writers and the performers who will be at that competition, which will run from August 25th through October. Then, OSU student T.J. Armstrong will review two new Batman books, Batmobile, The Complete History, and The Dark Knight Manual. And then, Ohio paranormal author John B. Kuchaba will describe what's scary about the Buckeye State. I am talking today with Chris Tsunami, who is putting together the 200 Columbus Invitational Arts Competition that will celebrate Columbus's bicentennial and bring together a number of different artists who will be performing and showcasing all their talents at a couple of different venues around town. So, Chris, welcome. Thank you. So tell me about the Columbus Invitational Arts Competition. Who all is involved? We have really about 30 different organizations. Most of them are small grassroots community organizations that are active in either the visual or performing arts. So tell me about some of the uh, performing arts, uh, some of the, the singers, the songwriters, those folks. The Performing Arts Showcase will be at the Columbus Performing Arts Center, which is, a lot of people know it better as the Old Davis Center, which for many years fostered a lot of the young performing artists in the city. It's just to the east of the library on um, Franklin Avenue. We have a lot of very different groups that are participating in the performing arts. One of the groups I'm really excited about is a group called Billy Two Shoes. They're a bluegrass group. It's a group of singer-songwriters who perform in the bluegrass genre, but they came together as a charitable group, and actually they donate all their proceeds to food banks across the state. Some of the other groups, we have um, New Harvest Urban Arts Center, and they do these collaborations with the local playwright, uh, Is Said. He's a well-known African-American poet and playwright. And they do, I think, two or three original plays by Isset each year. And they're kind of a combination of traditional theater and poetry. And so we're really excited to have them. Some of the other groups are more performance-oriented. We have um, the Saints Drumline, which is a youth group that does drumming. We also have a group that does classical music, which is also a youth group. Bread and Circus Theatre Company, which is a well-known local theater group. And you're also having a reception at the Columbus Metropolitan Library where people can go and see some of the art and then pick up a book by their favorite author, right? Yes. Yeah, it's very uh, very exciting to be hosted by the Metropolitan Library. The visual arts portion of our program is going to be hosted there. They actually have a wonderful gallery space. It's in what used to be the old library, which is now the administrative offices, but the entire second floor basically is devoted to gallery space. And we're going to be showing a lot of the the really great visual um, arts organizations of Columbus there. What can people look forward to when they go to see this? What kind of art is on display? Tell me some of the artists, things like that. One group is called 400 West Rich. And they're a, an artist collective that's taken over an old warehouse in Franklinton. And they basically have artist studios there. We also feature Creative Women of Color, which is a group of African-American women artists, and they currently have a show at the King Arts Complex. Some of the other groups include the 83 Gallery, which is a very innovative gallery that started out originally just in the owners of the gallery's basement. They just uh, repurposed their basement 
as a gallery, and it's uh, now moved to a much bigger space on High Street. Those are some of the groups. It's going to be a real range. I mean, the groups have very different styles. They come from different backgrounds. And what unites them is that they're all uh, center city arts groups, and they're all very connected with the community. What led you to put together all this stuff? I know that you're celebrating Columbus's bicentennial, but what made you think arts competition? What part of Columbus sparked that for you? There's always been this kind of stereotype about Columbus is that there's more talent than audience, meaning that there's a lot of people who are very talented and are doing really exciting things in the arts, but that it can be hard to get people to come and experience that. To be completely honest, one of the things I was influenced by was um, reality shows such as American Idol, Dancing with the Stars, The Voice, and other other shows like that, which just are really big in pop culture right now. And there's just so many people who are very enthusiastic about those shows and watch them all the time and call in and vote, but it doesn't necessarily translate over to them going out and experiencing the art that's around them. So it was a look at how can we tap some of that energy and turn it in a sort of local-facing direction. So we're really hoping that people will get excited about this as a competition and that they'll come out to support, you know, one group or another. But at the end of the day, it's not really about finding out who's best. It's just about bringing all these groups together. So what would be the perfect turnout for bringing all those groups together? Are you looking for the creation of the Columbus Sound or the Columbus Dance Style? What is your uh, thoughts about what would make you the happiest about this? Well, I definitely think there's a kind of synergy that can come when you bring together different groups. I was reading recently a book called, uh, I think it's called Imagine, which is about how creativity takes place. Um, Jonah Lehrer is the author of that one. And one of the things he said is that we often think of creativity as this very individual act, you know, one genius working alone, but that um, creativity actually happens in a community. And it often happens in a community where very different people kind of brush up against each other. So part of my hope really is that no matter what happens in terms of these events, that just bringing these different groups together will help spark their creativity. And, um, you know, I don't want to say necessarily the new Columbus sound or the new Columbus dance, because I don't know that that's what will come out of it. But I do hope that something, some new artistic movement does, does emerge out of this. Chris Tsunami, what are some of the future plans that you might like to see growing out of the Columbus Invitational Arts Competition? Well, obviously, you know, we have to do it this year first, but um, I'm hoping that we'll become a regular event for Columbus and then eventually maybe expand to a regional level, a national level, even an international level, that this would be um, something that would bring people together from, you know, all around the globe, uh, potentially. Chris Tsunami, thank you very much for talking to me today about the Columbus Invitational Arts Competition. It sounds like a great boost to Columbus and its art scene. And uh, again, that'll be starting on August 25th at the Performing Arts Showcase at the Columbus Performing Arts Center. And then uh, the next stop will be uh, September 6th through October 26th with a visual arts exhibition in the Carnegie Gallery of the Columbus Metropolitan Library. And what's the best way for people to learn about this? What's your website? It's uh, columbus.invitationalarts.org. Chris Tsunami, thank you very much for being here on Writer's Talk. Thank you. That was Chris Tsunami from the Columbus Invitational Artists Competition, which will start August 25th. More information is available at www.writerstalk.org. 
And now, OSU student T.J. Armstrong tells us about two new Batman books. It's the car, right? Chicks love the car. That was Val Kilmer as Batman in Batman Forever. Hi, my name is T.J. Armstrong. What's the most intimidating aspect about Batman? While you might be inclined to cite his impressive array of gadgetry or his fearsome cloak, one aspect of his character often overlooked is his car. Since its inception in 1939, the Batmobile has provided Batman with a means of pursuing criminals through the streets of Gotham City. Each generation of Batman fans has grown up with a different iteration of the Batmobile, from the earliest comic book sedan covered with bat iconography to the gadget-laden black convertible of the 1960s television show, finally arriving at the Dark Knight's militaristic urban thrasher, the Tumbler. With the highly anticipated culmination to Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy rapidly approaching, author Mark Hotta Vaz has collected and traced the evolution of Batman's most important gadget in his coffee table book, Batmobile The Complete History. Opening any page of Vaz's book provides a feast for the eyes. More than a hundred photos and full-color illustrations of the Batmobile adorn the book's pages, and even just by flipping through, one can gain a sense of the Batmobile's evolution. If you can tear your eyes away from the photos of the Cape Crusader and his vehicle long enough, you might notice some other captivating aspects of the book. Vaz goes to great lengths in the text sections. Trivia drips from the pages, from interviews and insights from Paul Levitz, recently retired president and publisher of DC Comics, lead production designers for the many movies that the Batmobile has appeared in, and Dan DiDio, co-publisher and influential voice at DC Comics. Vaz himself also makes interesting connections throughout the book, and through his eyes, a reader gains some appreciation for the conceptualization and design of each Batmobile. With Chris Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises coming to theaters in a matter of days, much of the book is devoted to the creation and implementation of the Tumblr. More time and page space is spent on this tank Corvette hybrid Batmobile than any other, with special attention being paid to the Batpod, the offshoot Batmobile of motorcycles which makes its first appearance in The Dark Knight. It might frustrate longtime Batman fans to learn that in comparison to the Tumblr, other iterations of the Batmobile receive far less attention, especially the 1960s television Batmobile. Though it receives a full chapter, this chapter is mostly pictures and fluff, rather than any focus on the innovative gadgetry that fascinated fans of the time. For what the book may lack in specificity regarding the earlier versions of the Batmobile, it certainly tries to trace its evolution. This is especially true of the sections regarding the Tumblr, which have Vaz interviewing stuntmen, modelers, production leaders, and even DiDio and Nolan. The reader is rewarded with a sneak peek at the Tumblr to come in The Dark Knight Rises. For all the time that Vaz spends telling the history of the Batmobile, the book is meant for the coffee table. The pictures and illustrations are stunning and meant to entice, and perhaps the most rewarding experience any fan will have is opening the book to find each version of the Batmobile lined up in a warehouse. Regardless of whether you are an automobile enthusiast or an avid Batman fan, Batmobile The Complete History is hands down the coolest coffee table book pertaining to cars you're likely to find this side of Gotham. Have you ever wondered what it would feel like to be the Batman? While it's fairly unlikely that you'll ever find yourself in cape and cowl, not to say it won't ever happen, the Dark Knight manual with text by Brandon Snyder provides insight into some of Batman's more memorable experiences. As much as Batmobile The Complete History is something of an analysis and synthesis of the various Batmobiles over the years, the Dark Knight manual is a much more creative endeavor. The text is a highly interactive journal scrapbook of sorts, centered on the experiences of Bruce Wayne as Batman in the new Christopher Nolan Dark Knight trilogy. Fans of the trilogy should be especially fond of the manual. 
Beginning with a case report by Jim Gordon on the deaths of Bruce Wayne's parents, the plot of the movies is fleshed out with messages from Lucius Fox and Alfred, newspaper clippings, and a good deal of notes on locations, events, and people from the perspective of the Dark Knight himself. While Bruce's writing style may not thrill readers, getting a peek inside the head of Batman is certainly an eye-opening experience. Perhaps the coolest part about the book is the depth of space given to Batman's gadgets, vehicles, and suit. Each gadget, from Batarang to Sticky Bomb Gun, is given a write-up, including detailed designs and renders. Fans even get a glimpse of the Bat, Batman's new flying vehicle. Fans of the trilogy's villains are also in for a treat. Bruce Wayne, being the meticulous crime fighter that he is, has included a personal file for each of the chief villains of the movies. Each file confers a bit more identity to the villains, making characters like the Joker seem even more real and visceral. The villains of the new movie, Catwoman and Bane, are also included, though these sections are written in the present tense, implying that the events of the movie are happening at the time of Bruce's writing. For those worried about potential spoilers, the creators of the book go to great lengths not to divulge too much information, so the events of The Dark Knight Rises are kept under wraps. If you are a fan of the recent films, or a fan of Batman in general, The Dark Knight May Manual is certainly worth owning. Getting lost in the world of Gotham has never been so easy or rewarding. That was OSU student TJ Armstrong with his review of two new Batman books. You can read more about those at www.writerstalk.org. And even though it's summer, it's still a scary time given how hot it's been. So here's Ohio paranormal author John B. Kachuba describing what's scary about the Buckeye State and where you should visit. From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. I am here today with John Kachuba, who has written a number of books about ghost hunting, including Ghost Hunting Ohio and Ghost Hunting on the Road Again, right? Ghost Hunting Ohio on the Road Again. All right. So tell me about these ghost hunting trips that you're taking. It seems like you've got the, uh, the, the family's strangest vacations. <laughs> well, actually, we do promote these books as paranormal travel books. Mm-hmm. And all the places that I write about are open to the public, okay. so people can go and visit them. They're historic sites, art museums, restaurants, you know, haunted a hotels. A haunted art museum? Absolutely. Which? Cincinnati Art Museum is a very haunted art museum. How is it haunted? What? It has Egyptian mummies, apparently, that float above their uh, glass cases, mm-hmm. right out of their sarcophagi. Okay. Uh, there's a haunted monk in mm-hmm. the uh, Gothic Spanish section that actually haunts this chapel, at this little chapel section. There. What makes a Spanish monk haunt the Cincinnati chapel? Well, this chapel has frescoes that they actually peeled off a Spanish chapel <laughs> in Spain and somehow found their way to Cincinnati and they recreated this little chapel. Okay. So the monk a- came with them. Yeah, I mean, that, uh, that, uh, that is, sounds very difficult to peel a fresco. I mean, that's a yeah. delicate... It's more like taking the wall. Right, they just stole the wall. Since we're in Columbus, we can, we can make that joke. Uh, we're here today at the Ohio Anna Book Festival. We should also mention that you are sure. um, here promoting and doing uh, some book signings right. and things like that. And uh, so what got you into the paranormal? How is it that you decided... Well, I've always had an interest in history, and I'm, I'm a big fan of history. And when you learn history, especially local history, you also learn sort of the folk tales, the ghost mm-hmm. stories, it comes with it. And I've been attracted to that for a couple of reasons, not just the history, but also my own sort of beliefs about what comes next. You know, what, mm-hmm. what does it mean to be here? Is there an afterlife? What's that all okay. about? So it goes hand in hand. All right. And I had an early opportunity to write Ghost Hunting Ohio, the first book, not thinking it would go 
well, not knowing how far it would go. Mm -hmm. uh, but it went very far with the publisher. They asked me to do su uh, you know, subsequent books, and now it's a whole series called America's Haunted Road Trip. Okay. So you're helping the, uh, the economy by shuttling people around various places. You've got Ohio. Right. You've got um, New England, North Carolina. They're all, sure. all these places are haunted. Right. Okay. How the long? Entire country is haunted. <laughs> coast to coast, coast haunted. Haunted in Seattle, right. um, Nashville, haunted. Right. Exactly. So, uh, what's the most haunted place that you have, have <laughs> been to? What? Everybody asks me that. I think one of the most haunted is local uh, in Mansfield, Ohio, the Ohio State Reformatory, mm -hmm. which was the setting for uh, the Shawshank Redemption. Mm -hmm. If you remember the prison yard right. and all in that movie, right. it was uh, it was shot there. So how does something rise to the level of you covering it and saying, okay, I believe this place is, is haunted or it's haunted enough to write about? Mm -hmm. That's what a good question because a lot of times people will say, especially if they have a business, hey, I've got a ghost, you know? Mm -hmm. And you have to be careful because maybe they don't really have a ghost, but it's great publicity for them to say they have a ghost. So I, I look for some um, documentation. And I realize scientists and researchers might say there's no yeah. What kind of okay? So what kind of documentation <laughs> counts for you? Well, a lot of stories, but but stories that can be uh, corroborated. And I'll give you an example. There's a place in Toledo called Collingwood, and over a period of about 20 years, two different groups of people have seen the same kind of apparition there. Mm -hmm. The first group were Ursuline nuns who used to teach there when it was mm -hmm. a Catholic college. Okay. The, the college closed, the nuns moved out, it fell into disrepair for several years, but then an art cooperative bought it about 20 years later, and artists moved into the place, established their studios there, and lived there. And they started seeing this same apparition. Mm -hmm. Now, nobody had written about this, it wasn't in the newspapers, it wasn't in the magazines, but I went up there and I talked to the artists, they told me what they were seeing, and I had a chance to talk to some retired nuns. And they said the exact same thing. Separate settings, and they weren't together. Mm -hmm. And they said the exact same type of haunting and everything else. So you have a history of 20, 25 years of two disparate groups having the same experience in the same location. Okay. Now, the artists, I have no problem believing that they're seeing. <laughs> but the nuns... That's where you go, yeah, the nuns yeah. are wild. You know, yeah, the I, nuns, I yeah, no. uh, we can and maybe... drinking and everything Right, else okay, crazy. that's... Party people. Awesome. Yes. So tell me about the experience of you're in talking to the nuns that you said were the second group. Mm -hmm. You had heard from the artists. Yeah. What's that experience like to have be sitting there and have them cooperate? What how, what was you, well, were you as a person feeling? Yeah, it makes I mean it makes you think. Okay, well I didn't see this myself. I didn't experience that. But I'm talking to people who are very sincere and obviously people who, despite you know the partying attitude of nuns, we do believe they're probably truthful and honest for the most part. Um, and so you're, you're in a lot of trouble <laughs> with nuns here. I'm by going the way. straight it's, to hell. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, all my friends are there anyway. All right, good. Um, I'm thinking that you know when they say something like that very sincerely and honestly, you have to say they experienced something. Mm -hmm. You know, and it wasn't just one person; it was several people. People, and so you think, all right, there's something going on here, and it's unsettling in some ways because it sort of shakes up what you expect, what your expectations are, what your set beliefs might be, that, no, nah, there's nothing out there, or whatever. So now you have to think, well, there's something. And I think with all the places I've gone to, that's sort of the, what I take away, is that people are experiencing something paranormal, which simply means something out of the normal. Does it mean it's ghosts, you know, disembodied spirits? Uh, maybe. Maybe it's... Um, laws of the universe that we just don't understand yet, physical laws, that 100 years from now people will say, do you believe they thought that was a ghost? We know now it's some magnetic waves or something, or who knows? So it just gets you to thinking that, okay, the universe is far bigger than I know, and that there is still mystery and magic in the universe. Okay. 
So who goes with you on this? Um, when uh, Do you go have to go by yourself? Do family members go with you? How far does the, the circle go of, of accompaniment? I have to laugh and say family members because my wife has a PhD in toxicology. She's a scientist. <laughs> she says, there's no science to what you do. I said, yeah, I know. It's all belief, you know. Okay. But, um, frequently, but does she go with you to see? She's to, gone to me. It? Yeah, she's gone with me in many places. And I have okay. to say, we spent the night in Painesville in a place called Riders 1812 Inn, which was built mm-hmm. in 1812, and it's haunted. And, of course, we said, well, we'll stay in the haunted room, which we did. And that night, we were awakened a couple times by the sound of wind rushing through the room and seeing curtains and nails blowing around while all the windows are closed, mm-hmm. and there's no ventilation. There's no air blowing out of an air conditioner or anything else like that. And so even she as a scientist said, okay, that's scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and okay. she didn't know why. You know. But um, to answer your question... Most of the time I'm by myself. Uh, my wife does travel to some of these places with me, but usually she'll stay in the hotel while I go out to the haunted location. Unless it is the hotel. Unless it is the hotel, hotel. which she's stuck. All right. um, but I frequently also work with different paranormal teams around the country, uh, some of the groups that you see on television and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And those are interesting because I'll watch them set up electronic gear that takes them hours to set up mm-hmm. to wire a house completely top to bottom for ghost detection. So I've worked with those kinds of groups. Too. Okay. And, you know, I've seen the ghost shows once sure. or twice. I've sort of floated past them. Um, yeah. <laughs> <Bad> crazy. <laughs> um, but so when you're with them, do you think, okay, they've got all this equipment and they're really going to nail it down, and you've thought, that proves it for, to be on the shot of a doubt for me, that goes in the next book, or that's not quite as uh, concise as you'd like? Yeah. It, well, it, to me, it doesn't really prove anything because there's no... You, if you're going to prove something, you have to have a basic theory that has some mm-hmm. some basis in fact before you can actually then prove it. And, and there is no basis in fact for ghosts, unfortunately. Uh, the theory that they're using is that ghosts are some kind of beings of energy, and that you can somehow track the energy through different kinds of meters and detectors and whatever, or that they give off heat energy, and maybe you can use some kind of thermal device to. Take. Well, that's all just somebody saying I think ghosts are energy. Mm-hmm. That's not very scientific. So I think when you're looking at all this gear, I think it's interesting that they're getting readings of some kind. It doesn't prove to me that you're finding a ghost. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite ghost movie? Probably Ghost Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. I was wondering. I, I just. But you haven't been covered yet in ectoplasm. No, no green slime. No, nothing. no giant no. marshmallow men. No, but I want their Ghost Hunter mobile. That's an awesome. Car. That's so. That's what you're getting with the I, royalties of this. Book. I hope so. I okay. hope to buy that car. Excellent. Great. Well. John Kachuba, thank you very much (laughs) for being here today on Writer's Talk. My baby girl was born in 1943 The year before the Navy shipped me out and overseas So I held her and kissed her and I said my goodbyes Leaving Virginia With a thousand other guys Leaving Virginia In the South Pacific Beneath the blistering sun On Tinian Island There was work to be done Four thousand Navy Baby 
bodies on the ground Crushing up coral and packing it down Crushing and packing it down They never told us, forbidden to ask We handed down the orders, we finished the task We never knew what the runways were for They said our job would be the one to end the war Now the Seabees work like hell till the work gets done We built four long runways laid straighter than guns And the runways, they glittered in the sunshine and fog Named Abel and Baker and Charlie and Dog Abel, Baker, Charlie and Dog And the diggers and the cranes and my battalion guys We paved the way to the Japanese sky 8,500 feet made of coral and clay And we built them all in just 53 days We built them in 53 days They never told us, forbidden to ask They handed down the orders, we finished the task We never knew what the runways were for They said our job would be the one to end the war None of us ever had a clue What Enola gay and little boy would do And in the early August heat We all got the news That the runways we built the runways they used Abel, Baker, Charlie and Dog They never told us forbidden to ask They handed down the orders We finished the task We never knew what the runways were for They said our job Be the one to end the war Mm -hmm. 
Trouble isn't easy, trouble brings doubt, fear comes in and the joy goes out. How are we gonna make it? What are we gonna do? How are we gonna make it when trouble comes through? We'll take it bird by bird, a little at a time, take it bird by bird and stone by stone, a little at a time, take it stone by Change isn't easy, change is hard Fear comes in and it can tear you apart How are we gonna make it? What are we gonna do? How are we gonna make it when change comes through? We'll take it bird by bird A little at a time Take it bird by bird And stone by stone at a time, take it stone by stone. Little at a time, take it stone by stone. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Backing me up right now are some wonderful songs by Joe Crookston, a Writer's Talk guest and performer for Six String Concerts. And check out sixstringconcerts.org, where you'll see that he's coming back to town this season. Thank you to my guests today, Chris Tsunami and John Kachuba, for talking about their writing and their events. And to our guest reviewer, OSU student T.J. Armstrong. For more information about Writer's Talk, visit www.writerstalk.org. Until next time, this is Doug Dangler. Keep writing. How are we going to make it? What are we going to do? How are we going to make this dream come true?